I received uh, a priceless gift from God, but I didn't take care of it. I neglected it. And a few years ago, I began to realize my failure, and I started to try to begin to nurture this priceless gift. The gift is called conscience. I don't want you to be like me and wait a whole long time before conscience even comes uh, onto your radar. Uh, How many of us would ever even think to mention a clean conscience when we give a testimony? Something you almost never hear, right? And yet, just about every time Paul gave a testimony, he mentioned the joy of having a clean conscience. How many of us in mentoring young Christians would emphasize the necessity of keeping a clean conscience, listening to your conscience. How many of your mentors spent time with you on that as they were mentoring you? How many of us knew that getting our conscience under control, that is, under the lordship of Christ, was a key to success in church life, as we learned this morning, and a key to missions as well, as we'll see uh, this afternoon. I was a missionary, yet I didn't realize that Paul forged an unbreakable link between getting our conscience under the lordship of Christ and uh, mission, the mission of making Christ famous around the world. So, uh, first of all, let's look at what conscience is, and this is just general background before we get in to the scripture. Uh, conscience is, first of all, a, a human capacity. Other human capacities are things like speech and reason. Uh, not every human reaches the full level of the capacity of, say, speech or reason. Some children die before, when they're still, before they're able to talk. But it's still a human capacity, and so is uh, conscience. Uh, some, some human capacities can be lost through things like dementia, and conscience can also be lost, but it's still a human capacity. Secondly, conscience is an aspect of being made in God's image. It shouldn't surprise you that you have a conscience because we're made in the image of God. God is a moral God. You're made in his image, so you must be a moral creature. You can't help but be a moral creature. And as a moral creature, you can't help but make moral judgments. And what is conscience but, but shining that moral light back on yourself and your actions and your own thoughts? In fact, it would be surprising if you didn't judge yourself. Number three, conscience seems to be independent. I wish I could spend some time on this because it has some interesting connections with Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. But When you think about it, it's surprising that you would even care about the verdict of your own conscience, but you do care intensely. Uh, And many people have taken their own lives because of of conscience, of secret guilt, a sin that no one else knew but themselves. Uh, Others have gone mad because of the telltale heartbeat of a conscience that just wouldn't be quiet, just wouldn't shut up. Uh, we would think it was kind of silly if a judge judged his own case and he would jump down from the judge's uh, bench and, and be a, his own witness and then he would come up and 
You know, that, that's just weird. That would be like a kangaroo court. Uh, and yet, this is what we do every day with conscience. And it's not funny. It's dead serious. Conscience seems independent. Number four, conscience is an on-off switch, not a dimmer. Uh, it, it doesn't do grayscale very well. It wants to adjudicate right or wrong, say, black or white. It doesn't do, it doesn't nuance. It doesn't say, eh, it's complicated. Conscience leads your thoughts to either accuse or excuse, according to Romans chapter 2.15. Now, because it always wants to make such stark pronouncements, it is of utmost importance that you make sure as much as you can that that, that what's in your conscience are matters of real right and wrong as you understand the scripture and as, as your church leaders teach you and lead you into What's, what's truly right and wrong? What is righteousness according to the scriptures? Otherwise, matters of mere opinion will receive a very powerful guilty verdict. This next one we already saw this morning. Uh, MYOC, mind your own conscience. Your conscience is for you and you alone. And you can't force your conscience standards on other people. Scripture forbids this kind of binding of the conscience. On the other hand, if you're a parent, you, you have every right in the world to, uh, to, to create the standards in your home, and your kids have to abide by those standards. So I'm not talking about things like that. I'm saying that uh, your, sta- your conscience is for you. And then number six, no two people have exactly the same conscience. This is so important. Uh, if, if, if we all had the same conscience, what chapter of the Bible would we not need? The Romans 14, we wouldn't need that. We wouldn't need 1 Corinthians 8 either. Uh, let's look at just this illustration here. Th- these red and blue triangles represent two Christians, Mr. Red and Mr. Blue. Now, notice there's a lot of overlap. Actually, there's way more overlap than this. I, I guess, well, I don't know, 95% overlap among Christians in a church. So that's really a blessing that we would uh, have so, so much similar overlap in what our conscience is telling us is right and wrong, right? Uh, so, but in or, you know, I had to sort of not have as much uh, overlap in this graphic. I've used the letters A through K to stand for various rules in our conscience, uh, uh, in the conscience of these two people. So, and then you have the purple area of overlap there, and uh, and then you see that. Uh, Mr. Red and Mr. Blue would agree that they should not do C, D, and E. Uh, they would agree on that. Uh, but notice that Mr. Red's conscience won't let him do A and B. Uh, Mr. Blue's conscience won't let him do F, G, H, I, J, and K. Uh, and if you're Mr. Red, you'll be shocked that Mr. Blue is oblivious to restrictions A and B. I can't believe Mr. Blue doesn't buy only fair trade coffee. Doesn't he care about downtrodden laborers in South America? You laugh, but stuff like this worms its way into our consciences and makes us very judgmental people. And by the way, don't think that these lessons and and this scripture is mostly for people who are from kind of strict conservative churches. 
Uh, hip churches are just as, people in hip churches are just as judgmental as people in stricter churches. Humans are just, we're, we're, we're creatures of moral judgment. And it's almost, we almost can't help make moral judgments because we're made in the image of God. It's just that people are judging about different things. And then, of course, Mr. Blue, uh, Mr. Red sees Mr. Blue assiduously avoiding all those, look at all that, F-G-H-I-J-K, and uh, Mr. Red rolls his eyes and says, uh, doesn't he know that those scruples aren't even in the Bible? And Mr. Blue says, how can Mr. Red call himself a Christian <laughs> and completely disregard all these, uh, these, these important rules? And so, no two people have exactly the same conscience. And this, this next point is, Potentially life-changing. No one's conscience matches God's will perfectly. Let that burn into your heart. (laughs) Not this side of eternity, anyway. And look, when we superimpose this green triangle, which stands for God's will, on top of these other two, you see that that, uh, there's, there's a lot of overlap, praise God, but we see that No human being except the Lord Jesus has a conscience perfectly aligned with God's will. Let this slide and this principle burn into your heart. Many of us have problems because we don't understand this this very principle right here. And we want others to have the same freedoms that we do, and we look down on them if they don't. Or we want others to have the same restrictions that we do, and we uh, judge them if they don't. And so we become the standard. Instead of, instead of life by the book, instead of life by uh, God's standards and righteousness, uh, we want people to live according to the standards of our own conscience. Not a single person in this room has a conscience that is perfectly aligned with God's will. Not one of you. And this should make us humble. Number eight. You can break your conscience. Oddly enough, it can be broken in two very opposite ways. This is counterintuitive. One, you, the most obvious, you, it can be broken by making it insensitive. That is, telling it to be quiet when you think that it's, it's correctly warning you about something. You just say, be quiet. I'm not going to listen to you. And that's called searing your conscience. Paul in 1 Timothy 4.2 says that some false teachers seared their conscience, and their lives were destroyed. But we can also break our conscience by making it oversensitive, by overpacking it with too many rules that are actually not from God, that not actually matters of right and wrong. And sometimes, and often, you get both methods of breaking your conscience in one person. And so the very Pharisees who would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel ended up murdering Jesus Christ. These eight principles finally bring us to what I said this morning that I would show you, the two great principles of conscience. And we'll start with uh, the second great principle of conscience, and that is obey it. Even unbelievers know this principle. The Bible says that to go against your conscience when you believe that your conscience is correctly warning you is always a sin in God's eyes. Always. Even if what you're doing is not actually a sin. Conscience can make a right thing wrong. It can't make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing 
wrong. That's a quotation by Mark Dever. I have a friend uh, who came to Greenville, South Carolina, and was shocked that everyone was drinking root beer. He's, he came from another country, and uh, he knew it wasn't alcoholic, but it had the word beer in it, so uh, it had to be wrong. You say, that's ridiculous, but you know what? Uh, That's why we can't make fun of other people's conscience rules. Because to them, it's life and death. And you can't compel someone. You can't say, oh, that's really stupid. Don't do that. Don't have that. You can't, that's not the the right attitude to have to to those who have, uh, to other people's conscience standards. So the second great principle of conscience demands that all of us obey our conscience. But does this mean that our conscience is always correct? No, of course not. And here's where the first greatest principle of conscience comes in. This is the one ring to rule them all. Principle number one, God is the only Lord of your conscience. You're not the Lord of your conscience. Your conscience isn't the Lord of itself. Your parents aren't even the Lord of your conscience, though they are trying their best to help you form a good conscience And they want you to obey your conscience. And you do well to listen to them when you're under their care. We're not lone rangers. We need each other. We need our pastors. We need our parents. Speaking of pastors, your pastors aren't the Lord of your conscience. Though they care for your soul and you'd be a fool not to listen to their counsel. Fellow believers aren't the Lord of your conscience. Though they will often pressure you to to follow their own conscience instead of God's will, or sometimes do that. God is the only Lord of conscience. So that means that the second principle that we just saw, do what it says, obey it, has a limitation. If God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through his word that your conscience is registering a wrong moral judgment and that you need to adjust it, your conscience must bend to God's revealed will. And the example, of course, is Peter when he received that vision that we talked about earlier. Uh, Peter was there in Mark 7 when Jesus spoke those words that that, that made it clear that that all foods were clean. All foods could be eaten. Uh, But what if Peter, when he saw the sheet with the animals come down, some of them unclean animals, and uh, heard the Lord say, kill and eat, What if he, after three times, still said, no, I'm not going to do it? And there was a knock downstairs or calling out at the door, as they do in Asia, and uh, he wouldn't have let them in either. He would have committed a serious sin. Whenever obey God and obey conscience collide, obey God must come out on top every single time. Now, praise God, a Christian with a well-calibrated conscience will rarely have to make a choice like that. And so what do I mean by a well-calibrated conscience? You know what a calibration is, right? You especially should know that here. A ship comes back into uh, port uh, to harbor after six months out because of jostling and, and other things, uh, the, uh, and lightning and static electricity. The instruments need to uh, have a, uh, uh, to, to, to be recalibrated. So a specialist goes on board and he doesn't calibrate it according to other ships. He has instruments and he calibrates it according 
to, to, uh, to anyone involved in calibration of ships uh, at some point, okay, or other instruments, airplanes or something like that, yeah. Uh, so to do that, you need a standard. You need the green triangle like we just saw, right? So uh, if you, uh, and in the same way, most Christians, uh, sadly, many Christians will calibrate their conscience according to maybe their subculture, according to what other people think. They want to fit in. Uh, sometimes they, they're just a gadfly kind of person, and they calibrate their conscience according to uh, the opposite of what everyone else is doing, because they just want to be different. You know those kind of people? Maybe some of you are those kind of people. Uh, but all of those, none of those are the, are the right motivation for uh, calibrating your conscience. To, to, um, here, here are the questions. Uh, well, 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 for time, we'll skip that. But for some of you, the image of calibration might be a little too geeky and mechanical. So you can also think of your conscience as a beautiful garden, a gift from God that he gave you uh, at, at your conception. Uh, and as you grew up and, and, and started to have uh, uh, moral thoughts, um, uh, you, you already had not the law written on your heart. The, the law doesn't get written on your heart until you're a Christian uh, by the Holy Spirit. So that kind of supercharges your conscience in a really beautiful way, in an accurate way. But the Scripture talks about the, uh, uh, the, the word of the law written on our, uh, the, uh, what's the word there? I'm trying to remember it. Do you remember? The, um, in uh, Romans chapter 2, um, And uh, but we we have this gift from God. It's not a it's not perfect, and it can also be broken. And as we grow up, we get more things put into our conscience from our family situation, or maybe our religion or our church situation. Uh, and some plants that are in this beautiful garden die because of neglect or because. Uh, 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 because of the searing of the conscience, certain plants will die that ought to be there. Weeds get in that shouldn't be there. And after a while, it, it, it can become a uh, kind of an uncontrolled garden. Just try to imagine when, on the day that the Apostle Paul got saved, what a tangled, overgrown conscience he had. And he's a, a scrupulous Pharisee. How many rules did they add? Do you, you ever hear about it? Yeah, it's like 600 plus, and that's why uh, you see the red there, that's, uh, in, in this case, the red triangle stands for Paul's conscience, and of course, the green triangle stands for God's will, God's righteous standards. And notice, uh, imagine Paul's conscience was overlapped significantly with God's will, but also, there was a whole bunch of other stuff there that shouldn't have been there, Right? So he had this overpacked conscience, and there it is in red. And he broke his conscience in different ways, too. A lifetime of straining out gnats caused him to swallow some really big camels, like killing Stephen and putting Christians to death and imprisoning others. It's a terrible thing. And yet, 20 years after his conversion... His conscience is so streamlined that he can 
glide imperceptibly from culture to culture. He can flex. He can say in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, these amazing words. And please listen to how gospel-centered these words are. Paul was motivated by the gospel mainly and by love for other Christians in regard to these matters. But listen, and I'll kind of emphasize the gospel-centeredness of these words. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, which is kind of interesting because I thought he was a Jew, to win the Jews, but he was a different kind of Jew, like a third culture Jew, you know? Uh, But he became like the Jews to, to, to win the Jews. So in verse 19, he says, to win as many as possible. Verse 20, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, three times he's mentioned the gospel. Verse 21, or evangelism. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. An important clarification here. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Why? So as to win those not having the law, four times. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Six times. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Seven times. Paul was so gospel-centered, gospel-saturated. Now this, this kind of life would have been impossible 20 years before when he had those 600 rules in his conscience. So what happened? How did, he get, how did he get from this to what we just read? Evidently, because it, Scripture doesn't say this explicitly, at some point in Paul's life, he basically took his conscience and all the moral judgments, this, this if you want to go back to the garden illustration, this tangled garden that was just like a jungle, and he gives it to God. He opens the gate of the garden to God and says, Lord, you are the Lord of my conscience. And in essence, I assume he asked, well, here's another slide. You know, uh, what we've done is we've just isolated Paul's conscience in this particular illustration. And so the upper part of this slide is uh, the part of Paul's conscience that, uh, that uh, corresponded to the will of God. But the bottom part is the part of Paul's conscience that didn't correspond to the will of God, things that were added. But don't, and don't you wish it were so clear-cut like that? Do you see how clear-cut it is? Oh, wouldn't that be nice just to kind of know, yeah, this stuff's just my stuff, and this is God's stuff, and here's the line right here, but it's more like this. <laughs> oh, my. And it's worse than this graphic. It's so hard to know the difference sometimes, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so you're trying to, trying to calibrate your conscience. Uh, And it's not that easy. So what happened? Evidently, Paul opened the the door of his garden, his gate of his garden to the Lord, and he asked three questions. What stays, what goes, and what's missing? Prohibitions about pork? What What did he do with prohibitions about pork? Does it stay or does it go? Yeah, it goes. Yeah. But what if he's in Jerusalem? 
Yeah, he'll, it, it won't be a conscience thing, but he'll, you know, he doesn't mind being kosher. He was, I think he was kosher, and don't you think, when he was in Jerusalem, he was kind of a kosher dude, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, let me go back. Uh, ritual hand washing, how about that? That was the thing that Jesus didn't do once and got in trouble for it, remember? Uh, that goes too. But if he got invited to the synagogue ruler's house, maybe he will. I don't know. How about telling the truth? Does that stay or go? Yeah, that stays. That's in, that was in the green part up above, right? That's, that's God's standards. How about loving your enemies? Added. You have to add. Remember what's, what's missing? That would be in the what's missing, right? He didn't love his enemies. He killed his enemies. He put him in jail. He didn't know about this. Or he had, he should have known about it from the Old Testament. But it wasn't a part of his conscience. And so it needed to be added. And evidently, he kept doing this until his conscience, as, as much as he could, could tell, was in line with the will of God. Now, what did he do with all those prohibitions that he had weeded out of his conscience? Was it party time now? Ham wrapped in bacon stuffed with crab every single day? But don't forget, it wasn't about food. It wasn't about him. It was about Jesus and the gospel and winning people to Christ. Now get this, please. This is important for missions and for Christian life. The restrictions that he weeded from his conscience were now the very matters that he could flex on for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of a Christian with a weaker conscience. It was in these matters that he could become all things to all men. You can't become all things to all men uh, in, in the green part, right? The actual standards of God. You can't flex on things that are actual sins. <laughs> no way. And you don't even flex on matters of conscience because if it's in your conscience, it's a matter of right and wrong for you. But now he was able to flex in so many different areas. And now this will mean creating new categories in our minds and new files where we'll place these matters that were once in the category of right and wrong. Now, it might be in a different category. It might be in the category of family rules. Now, we told our kids a thousand times, this is just a family rule. It's not a matter of right and wrong. Other families don't have this rule. And it still wormed its way into their conscience. <laughs> but when they became of age, they had to do the cleaning. They had to open the door of their garden to God and say, God, does this stay or this go? And where, and where does it go? Oh, it goes into family rules. Or you have another file in your heart called manners. I have three manners files. I have a manners file for America, a manners file for, <laughs> for um, uh, being with Khmer in Cambodia, and another manners file for being with tribal people in Cambodia. They all care about manners. Well, very much so. But the difference is in the details. Another file in my brain or my heart or however it works called hygiene uh, because a lot of times things like hygiene end up being sort of conscience issues for a lot of people 
How about you? Because God is the Lord of your conscience, I believe, especially for mature Christians, he expects you to do this gardening, to open the door of the garden, uh, let God do the gardening, that Paul evidently did. To give your conscience back to God and ask him these three questions. What stays, what goes, what's missing? Remember this, to live according to your conscience brings great blessing. We learned that this morning. You will be blessed if you live according to your conscience. But to train your conscience to match God's truth closer brings even more blessing and more fruitfulness. Now, here's the question that some of you are thinking. You're talking about this calibrating your conscience, J.D. How do you know the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Because after all, in both cases, you're telling your conscience what? What are you telling your conscience? Yeah, be quiet, right? My friend from uh, India had to tell his conscience, be quiet about root beer. (laughs) How do you know the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Well, here's one rule of thumb. Ah, here it is. You are sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is warning you correctly. There it is but you still don't listen to it. That is always a sin, even if what your conscience is forbidding is not a sin. But number two, you are calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through his word, teaches you through the the authorities in your life, your mentors, uh, but especially through your word, that your conscience has been warning you wrongly in a particular area, so you decide to stop listening to its warnings in that one area. This is called calibration or adjusting, and it is not sinning against your conscience. Even though in the early stages of calibration, you might still feel funny about it, right? My friend, when he first drank root beer with a completely clear conscience, he still felt a little bit of a conscience pang, right? Uh, But he got over it. We just read about Paul's cultural flexibility for the sake of the gospel. Now, notice that those verses, and and, and it was talking about cultural flexibility because Paul, remember, Paul was a Jew, but he said he became a Jew. So we're talking about something cultural there rather than racial, right? Uh, Same with Jesus. He became a Jew. Something cultural is going on there. Well, of course, Jesus became a literal Jew also, Uh, and so it, it, uh, but it was also a, a cultural um, submission that he went through. So um, notice in the verses that we read about Paul, there are two general categories of people. There's Paul and people like Paul who are the ones becoming all things to all men for the sake of the gospel. And then two, there are people for whom Paul flexes, including unsaved people uh, and including Christians. He's very happy to flex. We read that this morning. Uh, Very happy to flex for for Christians so that they won't be grieved or uh, led into sin, sinning against their conscience. Now, here's the question for you. How do you go from being the more ethnocentric, me-centric person that Paul needed to flex for and will gladly flex for to being the person like Paul who disciplines himself to do this amazing flexing 
while flowing from culture to culture. It's not easy. It requires years of careful tending of the garden of your conscience, or to go back to the other word picture, to cali- years of calibrating and recalibrating your ca- conscience to match God's will. It requires Christian maturity and lots of Christian love and theological conviction so you know the difference between truth and error. Personal discipline and an unswerving commitment to the gospel. The paragraphs before that passage I just read about Paul becoming all things to all men, the paragraphs before that and after that are all about self-denial and self-discipline for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. And that's really what Christian liberty is. Christian liberty is not cool, I finally get to do the things that my repressive parents wouldn't let me do. That's immaturity. Christian liberty, in the context of, of, of where we find the, the concept, both in, uh, in, in, especially in 1 Corinthians 9, and also in Romans 14 and 15, Christian liberty is, I think, best described right here. The freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. I get that right out of 1 Corinthians 9.19. Uh, Though I am free and belong to no one. There's freedom there. Paul is saying he has not placed himself under the bondage of other people. And he told the Colossians, don't let people, don't let people put you under under bondage to their restrictions that are not God's restrictions. They see, it seems like that's going to make you holy, but it doesn't bring about holiness at all. The freedom, see, Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself. And there's the discipline. It's not an easy thing to do. I have made myself a slave to everyone. To discipline yourself to be a slave to others. So here's someone who's not a slave to anyone. And he makes himself a slave to everyone. Why? For the sake of the gospel, that's what he says, to win as many as possible. Uh, Let me flesh out Christian liberty with a few real-life examples before we end. It's the freedom to choose, remember it's freedom, it's that Christian liberty is the freedom to choose to never again eat southern barbecue and double bacon cheeseburgers because you're called to serve Christ in the Muslim areas of Detroit. And you're, you do that happily for the sake of the gospel. Do you know people who do that? Yeah. That's Christian liberty. That's a little different than what we usually hear about Christian liberty, isn't it? But Christian liberty is, is for the mature. It's for, it's for those who, who care about the gospel, who want to evangelize. Christian liberty is the freedom that from Christ that allows a single lady missionary who was brought up to have personal scruples against wearing pants to discipline herself to wear the indigenous clothing of a tribe in Central Asia, including pants, because in that culture only loose women wear dresses and show their ankles and calves. And so she says, conscience be quiet. For the sake of the gospel, 
Christian liberty is the freedom that comes from Christ that allows a painfully private person, someone who's, who just wants, well, just a very private person, to open up her home in a society where people just walk in without knocking. A society that has no word for privacy. That's, I'm describing my wife. There's no word for privacy. In, the closest word in Cambodia, in Cambodian Khmer for privacy, is a word that means lonely. <laughs> Who would want to be lonely? <laughs> Who would want to be private? <laughs> Most of you would, <laughs> because we're Americans. Christian liberty is about a clean freak who forces himself not to get out his hand sanitizer every time he shakes someone's hands or touches something in a third world country. I didn't know this person, but I heard of a missionary couple who ruined their ministry because of that. It's just weird, you know what I mean? Just can't, you can't, can't do that. Christian liberty is the freedom to sing and dance to the tribal hymns the way they sing and dance to them, even though by upbringing and personality, you have not been comfortable with that. That's me. <laughs> David's gagging right now with pictures of JD dancing. <laughs> right, Dave? <laughs> Need some Clorox for your brain. <laughs> Get rid of that picture. All right, let's, let, let, let me, here's an example from Scripture. Christian liberty is about a Corinthian Christian, 1 Corinthians 10, who tends to have scruples about eating meat, getting invited to an unsaved neighbor's house for a feast. And there are a lot of people there. That's the way you have dinner. You don't have a private little dinner in, in most parts of Asia. You have a big feast. A lot of people there, a lot of different tables. You're served meat. He served meat that he doesn't want to eat, but he goes ahead and eats it because he remembers Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, which said, don't ask questions. Just eat it. And he eats it for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because that man's eternal soul, the host's eternal soul, is a whole lot more important to God than some scruple about not eating meat, which God doesn't even care about. Food does not commend us to God. Christian liberty is about another Corinthian Christian at the same party who has no scruples about meat at all, and he's ready to dig into the slab of steak on his plate and someone sitting next to him, and we don't know who this is, but someone sitting next to him leans over and says, don't eat it, it's been sacrificed. And for the sake of that man, Scripture says, not your own conscience, for the sake of his conscience, the meat lover puts down his fork and says, thank you for telling me that. And in his heart, he's crying. <laughs> because you don't get a lot of meat in ancient cultures. <laughs> and those are some examples of what Christian liberty might look like, fleshed out in everyday terms. Being free to discipline yourself, to put the gospel in others first. I have a missionary colleague who is a Bible translator in Cambodia. He was brought up by unbelieving parents to be a strict vegetarian, I think even a vegan. And that restriction, he told me, as I asked him about it, became entrenched in his own conscience so that he actually uh, looked down on others and felt morally superior to others who had a different kind of diet. 
After he became a Christian in college, he began to understand the things that I've been teaching here. He began to understand what the Bible says about conscience. And uh, he, he remained a vegetarian, but he moved that, that practice out of the file of right and wrong to another file of just preference, dietary preference. And he quit judging others who ate meat. Which means that's one more area he can flex on, right? He can go either way with it. It wasn't long after that that God called him to be a a Bible translator to a tribe in Cambodia. And he realized immediately that this restriction, this personal dietary restriction of his was going to cause some problems. In deputation, you go to people's houses and you can't eat anything. And, uh, and then you go to, the, what's worse, you go to Cambodia and these wonderful Christians invite you to their, their hut and they've made the very best food that they, they can, they made and it's always with meat. You don't, you don't not provide meat to somebody who comes to your house, even if it means you kill the chicken. Dozens, hundreds of times I've been to someone's house and, and just sitting there waiting, you know, kind of talking to them and all of a sudden you hear this, there's a chicken being killed for me. And what am I going to do? You know, and what is this guy going to do? So he, he realized this would be a huge problem. How could he refuse to eat the food offered to him by his tribal brothers and sisters? So in, he started in Australia, and he remembers to this day, and his wife will never forget it because she was shocked. He hadn't discussed this with her. He was on deputation. The plate of lamb roast was passed to him, and he took some. His wife looks over at him. <laughs> What's going on? See, I asked him uh, a few months ago, um, uh, if you were living in Australia, would you still be a vegetarian? He goes, oh, yeah, sure. He eats meat for the gospel. This is, to me, this is a perfect illustration of what, what Paul is talking about in the Scriptures. This is a missionary passage telling us how we can become all things to all men to win people to Christ. And here's a message to future missionaries. You can't live this kind of life if your conscience is overpacked with all kinds of stuff that doesn't need to be there. If you've taken 20 little things and made them into big things in your conscience, and if it's in your conscience, it's a big thing. Those are 20 fewer areas where you can follow Paul's example of flexing. Because if they're in your conscience, you've got to obey them. You, you can't flex. You must not sin against your conscience. Today's, uh, today's uh, message has been less of a message and more of a talk like a seminar on the nexus of conscience and missions. And I hope you understand and see the great joy of, of, of caring for this gift that God has given to us. It's important to do so. It's important to think about it. Every gift that God gives you, you've got to care for. You've got to take care of it. And I pray that that's what you'll do. And I have three uh, words of exhortation as I close. I'm guessing from, I don't even have to guess because some of you raised your hands uh, earlier today about this. I'm guessing a lot of people in this room, maybe in the past, maybe you don't do it anymore, in which case you wouldn't have to repent, but even still, have been judging other Christians with certain freedoms. Or you're the Christian with the freedom who's been rolling his eyes at the uh, overly strict, overly scrupulous. And if that's the case, I want to invite you uh, 
In fact, God's speaking through me when I say this because the scripture uh, wants you to do this. Uh, God is inviting you to repent of that sin uh, and to change, to be a different kind of person, uh, to fulfill your responsibility to one another, uh, to other people who disagree with you in this church and in other churches. So that's, that's one application and invitation. Secondly, and much more seriously, I bet there are at least 50 of you in this room today, maybe, maybe 20, maybe 30, I don't know, who knows, who have been consistently and repeatedly and recklessly sinning against your conscience. It's very highly likely that there's a good number of people in here who have been sinning against their conscience. And I want to say to you, you are on the road to ruin, to shipwreck. Some of you are having affairs, even if it's not a literal affair, it's a digital affair. You're going to destroy yourself and you're going to destroy a lot of people with you. Listen to your conscience. Listen to the Holy Spirit of God who is wooing you to to repent of those sins and to get a clean conscience again. The day that you want a clean conscience more than that activity is the day that you're going to be set free. The day that you want the smile of God on you more then that sin is the day you're going to be set free. Uh, you know what it's like to have a clean conscience. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> to have a clean conscience. You can have that today. I beg you, turn from your sin. You may need to publicly repent. Do whatever it takes to get a clean conscience. And then thirdly, There may be somebody in this room who hasn't had their conscience cleansed yet by Jesus Christ. You're not saved, in other words. Uh, You can't have a clean conscience. Jesus is the only leader of a religion in the world, in human history, who ever promised to solve the very root problem of a defiled conscience. No other religion even purports to do this. Jesus does. And you've read the verses, perhaps, in, in, in Hebrews and other places that <coughs> talk about how the, only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a defiled conscience. It's the only, Jesus, God created the conscience, God created substitutionary atonement through Jesus Christ, and he made them for each other. He created this, this way of salvation through Christ, partly to satisfy his holiness, of course, but partly to cleanse your conscience at the very deepest level. The only thing that can do it. Human ceremonies can't. The ceremony of Old Testament sacrifices couldn't. New Testament baptism, Lord's Supper, these can't take away sin. But Jesus can and Jesus will. And if you're tired of having a defiled conscience, I invite you, in the name of Jesus, I'm, I'm doing what, what our brother reminded us in Luke 20, uh, that we're supposed to do in Luke 24, 
to preach the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And forgiveness of sins can only come in Jesus' name. But it is bountiful. And it will cleanse you to the very, at the very deepest level of conscience so that you can be set free to serve a living God. God bless you as you uh, obey the various things that you've learned today. I praise God for the message that we heard earlier today. That message needs to be preached in every single church in America. Thank you, Brother Doran, for that. Uh, it, it, it moved me deeply, and I pray that, uh, we, that you as a church will um, obey and affirm in your, in your church commitment, your church covenants, your church life, every single thing that you heard, heard him teach this morning about the commission and the job of, 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 of the Christian church to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's obey the Lord. Amen.